As you came in this morning, you are used to coming in to music, used to seeing a stage filled with smiling faces, and used to having something put in your hands. My guess is not having a bulletin put in your hands may have been the most disturbing part of this morning. I can't tell you how many people came up to me this morning. Do we have bulletins? Do we have bulletins? Well, the good news is we do, but you get them after the service. And don't worry, the grace notes are already filled in. So someone told me this morning that everyone gets 100, which is good. As we consider worship, if we look back in the Bible, we find that there are at least eight expressions of worship indicated in Scripture. Singing, shouting, speaking, clapping, playing instruments, kneeling, dancing, lifting of hands. That doesn't end the list. From there, we go on to times of silence, drama, so many other elements, but all done with one purpose, for the glory of the Lord. This morning, we will encounter something that would have been so strange as the early Christians read it themselves and heard the stories. We need to hear this story. It's in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. It is a lengthy passage, but if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open with me there. And then perhaps to keep your finger there so that you can refer back to it from time to time. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. 
He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Your fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Heavenly Father, speak to us through your word. Challenge us, comfort us, change us. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus' popularity was growing among the people. Great multitudes began to come and to hear him teach and to watch him do miraculous things, and the religious leaders became a little bit uncomfortable with that. They became a little wary of Jesus. And then after he cleared the money changers out of the temple, they began to view Jesus as an outright threat. So Jesus had to leave the region. He didn't leave because he was afraid. He left because even though he knew there was a time coming when he would have a face-to-face confrontation with the religious leaders and the Roman government that would end in his crucifixion, the time was not then. And so Jesus left that region. And verse 4 says that he had to go through Samaria. That indeed was the shortest route that he could have taken from Judea up to Galilee. But many pious Jews wouldn't go that way. You see, the Jews were considered unclean, half-breeds both spiritually and ethnically. And therefore, many pious Jews dared not even walk on Samaritan soil or encounter anyone who would have been a Samaritan. They instead would have taken a, a less direct route. They would have crossed over the Jordan, then gone up and come back across at Galilee. Jesus, Jesus chose not to do that. He could have taken that alternate route, and his disciples would certainly have understood it because he was a, a holy man, a, a rabbi, a, a teacher, a man sent from God. But he chose not to go that way. Instead, it said he had to go through Samaria, and the had to may have less to do with geography and more to do with his divine mission. You see... There was a purpose for him to go to Samaria, a reason that he had to go to Samaria, a divine appointment that he had to keep in Samaria. And so, weary from travel, Jesus sat down by a well near Sychar. You know, that's always 
been a fascinating point for me. After all, Jesus is the Son of God. He could have zapped himself a cup of water. He could have made the container descend magically down into the well and scoop it up from a hundred feet under the surface. But he sat there and waited. Tired and weary from the journey, showing not only was he the Son of God, but he was also fully human. And along comes a woman to the well. The Bible says that she came at the sixth hour. By our reckoning, that would be about noon. The middle of the day. Which is actually quite unusual. Usually the women came to the well, and unfortunately it was always the women who came to the well to fetch the water. The women would come to the well either early in the morning or late in the evening because it's much cooler then. The men would come a little bit later in order to to, um, bring the flocks by or whatever they had to do, but then they would be out of out of range of that by the middle of the day. But here we find this woman coming in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day in order to draw water. And we have to ask ourselves, why would she do such a thing? Did she wake up late? What's the deal? Well, in fact, we discover a little bit more of this woman's life here, but everybody around knew her. It is very likely that the reason she came to the well in the middle of the day was because she didn't want to see anyone else. She had heard enough of the gossip. She had heard enough of the cruel comments from the other women. She really wanted to avoid them altogether. She had heard enough of the advances of crude men who felt she was an easy mark. And so she chose to come at the worst part of the day, hoping to find no one there. But there was someone there. It was Jesus, a Jewish man. From the looks of him, a Jewish holy man. And here she was, a woman with a reputation, confronting a Jewish holy man. Now, on the surface for us, that's not, that didn't strike us as much as it would have whoever heard this story very early on and maybe as disciples as they came back. But there were some big issues that would have made this encounter with this Samaritan woman uh, quite unusual. Uh, the first of those being that Jews did not associate with Samaritans. I spoke about that a few moments ago. They considered them to be unclean. They considered them to be half-breeds ethnically, half-breeds spiritually, and they had as little to do with them as humanly possible. Secondly, pious Jewish men did not talk to women who were not their wives or their daughters in public. Um, much of what we see, and we look at Middle, Middle Eastern culture, and we look at that and, and, and say how odd and unusual that was, it is, it is not a lot different than the culture was at that time. Men simply didn't talk to other women in public, and, and many times they wouldn't talk to their own wives or daughters in public. So it was unusual in that way. A, a third way was because this woman, you see, had this track record of brokenness and and sin, and Jesus was holy. And so a holy man, a a rabbi, a pious man would surely not intentionally speak with someone 
who had a reputation for ungodliness. If, if he'd known, if a holy man had known the kind of woman she was, he wouldn't have spoken to her. And so she would have been shocked. She would have been absolutely shocked that this man would have engaged her in conversation. You see, she didn't have a scarlet letter emblazoned on her robe. But she did have one that was deeply etched in her heart and in her spirit and in her mind. When she thought of herself, it was as someone who is broken and defective and dirty. And when she walked around, it was not the weight of the water container she carried, but it was a weight of guilt and shame. Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you only knew. See, we standing on this side of the story know it is a divine encounter, that it is no accident, it is no quirk of fate that has brought Jesus to this well at this time. He was there at that well at that time for that encounter with that woman. It was a divine appointment. The woman might well be able to draw water from that well and give it to Jesus to quench his thirst. But Jesus was there. Jesus was there to give her living water, to offer to her hope and life. What is this living water? Well, in order for us to understand that, it might help us to flip forward a few chapters to John chapter 7. I'm going to put the words up on the screen for you. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39 say this. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, by whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Living water is the Spirit of God. And here was the Son of God offering to this broken vessel, this fallen woman, this disreputable woman, this lost soul, offering her life, real, real life through Him. What He wanted to do, more than to get the water from the well, What he wanted to do was to pour living water into her, to give to her God's Spirit. You see, day after day she came, avoiding the crowds in the heat of the day, carrying a heavy clay jar on her shoulders or her head. She came to the well, and she dipped that container down deep, 
The well, even now, is 75 feet deep. At that time, it was very likely 100 feet deep and would lower that container into the well and, and scoop up the water and put it into her own jar. She probably had to do that numerous times in order to get enough water from that container to fill her jar. And then she would carry it back home again. Day after day, a constant routine. And as she carried the water, she carried her guilt and shame This was her lot in life. It was not the life she wanted. But like many of us, it was the life she had made. It was the burden that she carried. And perhaps she felt that she didn't deserve anything more. She didn't deserve joy or peace, or satisfaction, or acceptance. Jesus came to that well with a need. But she came to that well with a greater need. And only Jesus, only Jesus had the answer. And so she said she wanted the living water. Even though she didn't know what it was, she wanted the living water. Jesus had struck a chord somewhere deep within her, a hope that had been stripped away through the years as she had given herself to one man after another, trying to fill that void in her life, trying to find that satisfaction that was so elusive. And now here was a man who was not looking at her for a one-night stand whose purpose was not to love her and to leave her. A man who rekindled a dim spark of hope buried somewhere deep in her soul that things might be, could be different. Or perhaps if she could just hide the fact that she had this reputation, perhaps if he didn't know the depth of her depravity, perhaps then maybe he would give her this living water. If she could only keep it from him, the mess that she had made of her life, then maybe, just maybe, this man might give her this living water, might change her life in some dramatic way, If she could only keep the truth from him. But the truth was that he knew it all. From first to last, he knew it all. Here's the key. He needed her to know that he knew it all. And even in knowing it, still offered her life and hope. And so... He says, go, call your husband, and come back. A reasonable request. If he was going to talk to a woman who was not a relative of his, then having the woman's husband with her, it would just all made sense. But you see, Jesus knew her answer before she answered. And Jesus knew her circumstances before she ever said anything about them. And the purpose 
of the command was in order to lay her life bare so that in his presence she might see the full putrid contents of what she had made of this life that God had given to her. Her response, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man that you have now is not your husband. So what you have said is quite true. This is the proverbial cat being let out of the bag. The truth is now on the table in all its ugliness And she does what we do. Evasive maneuvers. Let me see if somehow I can get out of this mess. I don't want to talk about the stuff in my life. I don't want to deal with the junk in my life. I don't want to have my sin exposed. And so let's talk about religion. Let's get you, you holy man, into a debate that we can just at the end say, well, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and we'll just all go about and be happy. So you're a prophet. I can see that. You told me everything that's going on in my life. By the way, since you're a prophet, could could you ask me a question about, let's talk about religion a little bit, the right place to worship. You know, I've always thought about this, the right place to worship. Now, you Jews say that you ought to worship in Jerusalem. You say that that's the place and there's no other place. But our forefathers worshipped here at Mount Gerizim. Matter of fact, Abraham worshipped here. Jacob worshipped here. This is holy ground for us. So what do you think? Which is the right place? Sidetrack, maneuver, derail, try to get, get him to talk about anything except our own spiritual condition. But Jesus was there to finish what he started because his purpose for being there was not to enter a religious debate. His purpose for being there was to give her life. Here's his reply. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans... You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus reshapes the debate. For this woman as would have been for many in that culture, the place of worship was preeminent. And sadly, they'd fit right in with the culture in which we live today. It is about the place. It is about the buildings. It is about the trappings. It is about the rituals. It is about the religious habits. It is about the music. It is about the lights. In some churches, it's about the disco ball and smoke. It's about the size of the organ or the sound of the band. It's about the worn-out hymnals in the back of the pew. It is about how hot it is. It is about how cold it is. It is about how hard the benches are or how soft the chairs are. It is not about worship. 
God's people gathering in the presence of God to honor Him with their hearts and their lives. Now, Jesus, this is easy to miss, but in the midst of this, it is not a rebuke. It is an offer of hope. This is what Jesus said. You, a time is coming when you will worship. Now, let's, let's hit the pause button right there. Think about this woman's life. She has a reputation. Everybody in town knows about it. There is no escape. There is no hiding it. When would have been the last time she would have dared to go and gather with people to worship? The odds are very good that it had been a long, long, long time. And that the possibility of gathering with other people to worship, the possibility of that was a snowball's chance in hell. The way for her to enter and worship was barred by some five-foot-thick steel door. There was no way that she could penetrate that. No way that she could go in. No way that she could gather with other people to worship. Nor would there be any way that she would feel in her heart that she could worship. That God would accept her. That God would receive her. Surely He would reject her outright. But Jesus said, there's coming a time when you, what? will worship. And that time is now. And the place is unimportant. That is so key for us to get. Jesus is not here to beat this woman down because of the mistakes that she's made in her life. Jesus is here to bring hope into her life. To say, you... And I know you, and I know what you've done, and I know how bad you've been, and I know what a mess you've made in my life. But I'm here to tell you that in spite of what the people think about you, and in spite of how you feel about yourself, you will worship. The door is open. The opportunity is before you, and the time is now, and it doesn't matter where. Here is the reason that Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's right here because God is seeking worshipers. Did you know that? God is seeking worshipers. And He is not hanging around the temple waiting for people to show up. God is seeking worshipers and He's not hanging around here Monday through Saturday in this building sitting on the front row saying, my goodness, when is Sunday ever going to show up? Are these people ever going to be here? No. God is seeking worshipers out in the streets. God is seeking worshipers in the shops where you work. God is seeking worshipers at your school. God is seeking worshipers in your your office. God is seeking worshipers everywhere. He was seeking worshipers in the middle of the day at a well near Syker. God is seeking worshipers. He's looking for worshipers. God is actively pursuing worshipers. 
You know, when I first heard the term that was referred to as a seeker service, and I know what it means. It means that you're sensitive to people who are not believers in Jesus Christ and you try to create an environment which they can be, feel comfortable, and that's fine. But i got to tell you, every service is a seeker service because God is seeking worshipers. God's the seeker. He says, yet a time is coming, and it's now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers. See this. The Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is not merely an external act in a specific location. Let me tell you right now, all throughout our world, there are people doing religious things in religious buildings. But it is not necessarily worship. God is not seeking empty words and meaningless activity. God is spirit. He is not contained in buildings. He is not contained in rituals. He is not contained in prayer books. God is spirit, and he is seeking people, even broken, hopeless, sin-stained people who will come in humility, open their hearts before him, not hiding their lives, but revealing themselves to him, receiving his love and loving him in return. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Can you imagine a more tragic verse in Scripture than God saying, these people who gathered and call on my name, these people who come and do religious things, these people who set apart a time in their life, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is, on a Sunday or a Saturday or a Friday night, these people honor me with their words. They say the right things. They go through the right motions. But Their heart is not in it. They're not worshiping me from deep, deep within. We worship God in spirit when we worship Him with hearts fully engaged. And I have to ask you a question because I have to ask myself this question every single week. Does that describe me? Where is my heart when I'm worshiping? Where is my heart when I gather with other people? Am I fully engaged from the very depths of my being in the worship of my Creator, my Redeemer, my Savior, my God? We're to worship in spirit. That's what the Scripture tells us we're to do, but we're also to worship in truth. Jesus readily acknowledged that the Samaritans said, well, they were kind of fumbling around in the dark. He said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. And it's true because their faith was kind of a mishmash of, of various beliefs. And it matters. It is just as important that we worship in truth as it is that we worship in spirit. Worship must engage our minds as well 
as our hearts. Think about this. It is not just an emotional response to God. I have been in worship settings that were unbelievably wild. Uh, If you've ever been to a youth camp, if you've ever been to one of these super wild things, if you think we blow the doors off, you ought to go there. Literally, parents, chaperones have earplugs. They, they have earplugs. They come in, and the music is blasting, and the kids are jumping around, and they got some, some skateboard guy up on the stage doing all kinds of tricks, and you're going, what? But i got to tell you something. You look into the eyes and into the lives of some of those teenagers, and you recognize that it has struck within them something that has lied dormant all their lives. It has awakened within them a spirit that, that they have never known before, and they are caught up not in the trappings, but they're caught up in the presence of God right there. And you have to thank God that somebody had the initiative, somebody had the foresight, somebody had the courage to step up and say, if we're going to reach this generation, we're going to have to do it this way. But I've got to tell you also, there are a bunch of kids just jumping up, jumping up and down and hollering. In, the, in that mix, there is true worship and empty worship. Let me take you to the other side of the spectrum. I've been in worship settings that were solemn and quiet and still, where I didn't know when I was to stand and when I was to kneel and when I was to sit. And I thought to myself, how can anybody ever worship in a place like this? And yet I look around on the faces of some who are gathered there And there is a sense of reverence and awe in them. And you can tell that they are worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. And then you can look around and you can see that there's some people who are just sitting and kneeling and standing in the same building, doing the same things. True worship and empty worship. Somewhere between those two extremes, we exist. But on Sunday morning, as you gather with other believers, as you sing the songs, as you stand and sit at the appropriate times, as you pray, as you listen, as you take notes, there's some who are worshiping. And for some, it is empty. You see, it matters that we engage not only heart, but we engage the mind. You and I could cobble together a God of our own. We could take bits and pieces of Bible stories and scraps of world religions and chunks of moral relativity. A God who, well, a God who ignores our sins and grades on a curve. And we could worship Him with great fervency. And our worship be empty. It is said that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie straight from the pits of hell. It does matter what you believe. Jesus makes it clear God is interested in both how you worship and whom you worship. God is interested in how you worship and in whom you worship. 
Now, as Jesus brings this encounter with this woman to its divine conclusion, this woman who's had both her eyes and her heart opened, expresses a hope that a few moments ago she would not have dared to express. She had heard that there was a Messiah coming, the Christ, a Savior who would make everything right. Before, she dared not hope that he would come for her. Not her. Not after the mess that she had made of her life. That she could somehow be accepted by this Messiah. You see, she was an outcast who'd come to the well in the heat of the day to avoid the cruelty of other women and the advances of other men. She was helpless. She was hopeless. She was thirsty. She was lost. But along comes this righteous man who knows everything about her life and yet does not let her past define her, who offers her hope when she had no hope, who offers her abundant life to replace mere existence, who tells her that true worship is not about being in the right place at the right time, but about worshiping the one true God with all her heart, who shows her that the Savior is there for her too. I who speak to you am He. Think about this. She said, I know that a Messiah is coming, a Savior is coming. I know that. And you, a man whom I presume to be a prophet, a holy man sent from God, you somehow have accepted me and offered me some modicum of hope. And now the little hope that I hold on to right now, this little bit of hope that I can fit in the palm of my hand that you've placed here, that you accepted me, maybe, just maybe, If you, a prophet, could accept me and give me hope and offer life to me, if you, a prophet sent by God, could do that, then maybe, maybe, maybe this Messiah could do that. And Jesus says, I'm Him. It's me. The Savior is here for you. He knows all your life. And He loves you anyway. You don't need to hide anything. I don't know what you've done in your life, but i got to tell you, I've I've done enough to deserve hell ten times over. And yet a Savior came. And He met me at the point of my deepest need. And He gave to me living water that flows from within to eternal life. Many of you have that testimony, but some of you here do not. I'm here to tell you that there's a Savior for you. There is a Redeemer for you. There is one who loved you enough to die for your sins on a cross so that you might have life. And it's the same one who encountered the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus is here at this place at this time for you. It is no accident. It is no quirk of fate. It is as much a divine appointment as that was.
And if you need to receive this Jesus as Savior, then this morning I want to give you an opportunity to do that.